This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Quiz time. Which conductor said this? I would happily give up all the Brandenburg concertos for Manon. Any guesses? It was the great Sir Thomas Beecham. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we learn more about Massenet's most enduring opera, Manon. Join us at the Met Opera Guild's annual luncheon. On November 20th at Cipriani 42nd Street, we'll honor Martina Arroyo and Teresa Stratus on the 60th anniversary of their Met debuts. With appearances by Harold Blackwell, Stephanie Blythe, and Eric Owens, and a musical tribute by Eileen Perez and Matthew Polanzani, this luncheon will be a highlight of the opera season. Tickets start at 275. For reservations, call 212-769-7009 or visit metguild.org slash diamond. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Abbé Prévost's 18th-century novel about the rise and fall of a country girl named Manon inspired a variety of composers, from Aubert to Puccini to Hans Werner Hentz. But arguably none reached the emotional lyricism of Jules Massenet's operatic setting. Premiered in 1884, Massenet's Manon proved to be one of the composer's most lasting successes. In fact, the opera received its 1,000th performance only seven years after the composer's death in 1912. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, my co-host Naomi Baratera takes a closer look at this French masterpiece. When Massenet's Manon came to the stage this season at the Met, soprano Lisette Oropesa got glowing reviews for her performance of the title character. Writing for the New York Times, Joshua Barone stated, Ms. Oropesa slips into the title role as if it were custom couture. In her first aria, sung with enunciation so clear it could be transcribed, she has an innocent lightness that gives way to intoxicating joy as it becomes apparent that Manon is already too grand for her humble packaging at the start. Slight frame, childish hat and ponytail, plain outfit in muted blues. But as the opera continues, with Massenet's effervescent and eclectic score, eager to please and utterly pleasing under the baton of Maurizio Banini, 
Ms. Oropesa's musicality becomes even more layered. It can be easy to play Manon as a ruthless femme fatale, for example, as she becomes the toast of Paris, and Ms. Oropesa was suddenly big-voiced, glamorously tossing off high notes with insouciant sprezzatura. But hear also how she shrinks her sound to a stark mournfulness in Adieu Notre Petite Table, pained yet chilly as she prepares to leave Des Grieux for another man's luxury. In just a few days, the last performance of Manon in the Met's fall run will be broadcast live in HD, and audiences around the globe will be taken on a journey into the story of this woman who has bewitched and broken the hearts of opera-goers for centuries. It is a huge role for the soprano, and there is great depth and nuance that can be brought out of this character. In our time together, we'll explore the musical contours of this work as Massenet weaves a score of sweeping and seductive thematic recall and atmospheric scene setting that brings the story of Manon Lescaut to life. But before we do that, we'll start with a little bit of history. Who was Massenet, and where does he fit into the larger history of opera? And furthermore, who is Manon Lescaut, where did she come from, and what is helpful to know about her before the curtain rises? Born outside of what is now Loire, France, Massenet's earliest musical training can be attributed to his mother, who was an amateur musician and gave her son his first piano lessons. After the family moved to Paris, Massenet was admitted to the Paris Conservatoire when he was only nine years old. In his teenage years, while still studying at the Conservatoire, Massenet made ends meet by playing percussion in the orchestra pits of Paris, giving him unique insight into how different instruments in the orchestra functioned and how they could be utilized for maximum dramatic effect. He also worked as a piano accompanist and crossed paths with two of his compositional heroes, Richard Wagner and Hector Berlioz. His training at the Conservatoire was capped off by winning the Prix de Rome, the top musical recognition for a young composer of the time. As part of the prize, he spent two years studying in Italy. He returned to Paris in 1866 and began actively composing and publishing works of all kinds. He was extremely prolific and turned out many operas in those early years as he worked to establish himself. Some succeeded, some failed, and almost all of his early work has fallen out of the canon, until he hit it out of the park with one of the most enduring French operas today, Manon. After Manon, he wrote several other operas that have survived and become quite popular today, such as Werther and Thais, and his work would go on to essentially define the operatic style of Belle Epoque Paris. In terms of musical technique and influence, he holds an interesting place as a composer. He composed in all kinds of forms, cantatas, piano music, vocal music, orchestral and chamber music, operas and operettas that spanned comedy, tragedy, and every combination in between, on scales both large and small. He absorbed some of the trends of his time, like exoticism in the opera house, as can be seen in Thais, and he was deeply influenced by Wagner but he was able to establish a distinctly French and highly individual style of his own. Some of his operas follow clear-cut traditional structures, with duets and arias and defined scenes, while others are more through-composed. While some scholars say that Massenet owes more to Gounod and Meyerbeer than Wagner, the general idea of using reoccurring musical themes in a work, what we would call leitmotif in Wagner, 
is utilized in the score of Manon and several other works by Massenet. Manon is full of recurring musical themes, musical ideas that the audience remembers in association with a particular dramatic moment, and that Massenet powerfully recalls throughout the rest of the work. But his use of reoccurring musical material is not nearly as all-consuming in the construction of the score as we might find with Wagnerian leitmotifs. While Manon features through composition in a sense, there is a constant stream of music, as Jack Windsor Hansen described, whereas in Wagnerian music drama, the leitmotif is an integral part of the work that forces the vocal line to become an immutable, complex series of measure recitatives, those of Massenet are supporting thematic ideas that still allow room for conventional arias. We'll hear some of these reoccurring musical themes in a few moments, but first, a little bit about the source material that inspired the work. The opera is based on a novel, first published in 1731, titled L'Histoire du Chevalier de Grieux et de Manon Lescaut, or in English, The Story of the Chevalier de Grieux and Manon Lescaut. It was part of a series of publications by Antoine-François Prévost. It was considered extremely scandalous at the time, so much so that the book was almost immediately banned in France, but it was such a popular story that it still managed to proliferate through pirated copies. Prévost published a second edition of the book a little bit later, with some of the more scandalous details toned down. But Manon's story was already extremely popular, and she has, quite literally, inspired composers, writers, filmmakers, dancers, and artists of all kinds for centuries. The story is told in the novel from the perspective of the Chevalier de Grieux. De Grieux meets Manon and falls madly in love with her, which begins a kind of obsessive and turbulent love affair between the two. They are together for a while, and then they part ways, are brought back together, and then part again, and this cycle repeats itself several times. Sometimes they part because Manon seemingly chooses to leave, and sometimes they are torn apart by circumstance. For example, De Grieux has been cut off from his family's wealth because they disapprove of Manon, so when they are together, they get involved in gambling as a means to support their luxurious lifestyle, which eventually leads to their separation and imprisonment. When they are reunited for the last time, it seems as though true happiness together is finally within their grasp, but before they can live out this dream, Manon dies in De Grieux's arms. He eventually returns to the life he had before meeting Manon, but he is forever impacted by his time with her. There are many ways of interpreting the character of Manon when translating her story from the page to the stage, and everyone seems to feel different levels of sympathy for her. She is a female character crafted and presented from the perspective of a male author, Prévost, and a male protagonist, Des Grieux. It can be easy to portray her as materialistic and shallow, pursuing security and wealth over true love. She can also be portrayed, as Joshua Barone pointed out, as a femme fatale, a destructive force fully aware of the power she has over Des Grieux. She can be portrayed as truly deeply in love with Des Grieux, but as a woman in a man's world, preyed upon by men because of her beauty and allure, she is forced to make heartbreaking decisions for the sake of survival. And she can be portrayed as a combination of all of these things, which is part of what makes her such a fascinating character on the opera stage. 
The opera had its world premiere at the Opera Comique in Paris on January 19, 1884, and it was a success from the very start. There are many famous divas that would make a mark for themselves in the role of Manon, but none had more influence over the early shape of the opera than Sybil Sanderson, known in Paris as La Belle Cybelle. Although she did not premiere the role, she was one of the most famous Manons of her time, and she was Massenet's personal favorite. Although she herself was not French, she was actually born in California, she captured the beautiful, glamorous, and fickle Manon in a way that French audiences fell in love with. She first performed the role in 1888 at The Hague, but it was a revival of the work at the Opera Comique, with Sanderson in the title role, that really changed the opera forever. The revival was an opulent affair, a beautiful production with no expense spared. Gilded Louis XV-style furniture filled the lover's apartment in Act Two, and a crystal chandelier hung above the gambling tables of Act Four. Massenet added a new aria to the score that had not been part of the Paris world premiere, the Act Three Gavotte, which he had actually written for a London performance of the work, and which Sanderson specifically requested be included in the revival for her as well. But this was not the only change that would be made famous by Sanderson. She asked for dozens of small changes here and there throughout the entire score, adding all kinds of ornamentation, melismas, appoggiaturas, suspensions, fermatas, cadenzas, and slight rhythmic variations, to make the character of Manon more seductive, and increase the dramatic impact of the role so that the soprano was not outshone by the tenor. It is this version of the score that is permanently part of the repertoire today, as Massenet used the alterations suggested by Sanderson in the official, definitive, published version of the score in 1895. As the conductor of this performance, Pierre Monteau, recalled, We in the orchestra watched the opera change before our eyes during the rehearsals. Massenet was in awe of Sanderson's extraordinary musical perception. We all were. Every day, Sanderson would request an addition of a fermata or a suspension or some rhythmic alteration in a phrase which would be so delightful for Massenet that he'd order us to copy it all into our scores. You know, Massenet was a clever man with admirable instincts for what was dramatically right for the theatre. He wouldn't have incorporated all her changes into the score if he hadn't felt they were an improvement upon the original edition. And I have never known any soprano who could compare with Sanderson. She was Manon, you know, always seductive and elegant, never gauche at any time. You knew Manon loved Desgrieux with every fiber of her being, but she couldn't help herself. She was dazzled even more by the riches offered her. When the revival opened, the house was packed, completely sold out, and everyone who was anyone in Paris had a ticket to see the American diva bring the beloved French role to life. And it's a role that many great sopranos have made a mark with over the course of history. Beverly Sills sang the role to great success, and she once described the vocal demand of the role as being the French Isolde. We'll hear some of those great sopranos in our musical examples, including Renee Fleming and Anna Trebko. <laughs> When the 
opera opens, we are in a small town north of Paris at an inn where a group of flirtatious, glamorous women and several men are milling about as a dinner party is about to be served. A coach arrives and everyone is curious who it could be, including an old womanizing minister of finance named Guillaume and Lescaut, who is waiting for his cousin Manon to arrive. Lescaut is supposed to escort Manon to a convent because her parents find her too wild and difficult to deal with. And when she steps out of the coach, her excitement is palpable. This is the furthest she has ever been from home, and she is in awe of just about everything. She sings about this awe in her first major aria, which Massenet instructed in the score to be sung with charm and emotion. The music paints a picture of the things Manon describes, the excitement she feels, the idea of looking out the window and seeing the countryside pass by for the first time. The rising phrases and ornamentation in the vocal line express her wide-eyed excitement, and sudden changes in the orchestra reflect the sudden change in mood that Manon describes. She talks about feeling as though her emotions move suddenly between feeling excitement and then intense sadness and then an uncontrollable urge to laugh. For this clip, we'll hear Renée Fleming in a 1995 recording from the Paris National Opera. Oh, my God. 
Lescaut is distracted looking for her luggage, Guillaume immediately starts making advances towards Manon. Never mind that he is significantly older than her, he has no shame and offers to pay her for a little loving. The other hotel guests laugh at his antics, and Manon manages to avoid his pursuit of her for the time being. Lescaut, who witnessed part of their exchange from afar, is not pleased and he chastises her, but he's also not concerned enough to stay with Manon until it is time for them to depart. He scolds her, essentially tells her to stay put, and goes off to enjoy some gambling before departing. Left alone, Manon looks at the luxurious life of the ladies inside the inn. She dreams of that kind of luxury, and sings with sadness when she realizes that her fate, going to a convent, will be far from glamorous. Just as Manon finishes her aria, the Chevalier de Grille enters, awaiting his coach on a trip to visit his father, and we hear his theme as he enters the stage. And when de Grille sees Manon, it is love at first sight. As he approaches her, we can hear in the music and see in his movements that he is unlike all the other men she has encountered so far. He's not forcing himself on her in a lecherous way, but he is kind and sweet and completely enamored. As we hear his opening lines to her, the first things he sings to her, our De Grieux is Piotr Bekchawa singing at the Met in 2012. Je le vois sourire, puis mon cœur ne me trompe pas. 
confides in Des Grieux that her parents are shipping her to a convent, he suggests that they run away together to Paris. Excited, they flee before Lescaut and Guillaume return. And this is when we are introduced to their love theme as they make this decision. It's a sweeping, passionate melody that will return throughout the opera and is most poignantly restated in the final scene. Here again is Renee Fleming in that 1995 recording with Marcello Alvarez singing her De Grieux.
When Act Two opens, we are in Paris at Manon and Desgrieux's tiny apartment. They have been living together for some time, and while Desgrieux writes a letter to his father asking permission to marry Manon, Manon wonders aloud whether marriage is really necessary, or if they could just remain lovers forever. Just then, Desgrieux notices a bunch of flowers on the table. He asks Manon where they came from, and she says they were tossed into the window, but she doesn't know by whom. Just then, Manon's cousin, Lascaux, and his friend, Bretigny, arrive. While Desgrieux shows Lascaux the letter he is writing to his father, and tries to convince Lascaux that his intentions toward Manon are honorable, Bretigny takes Manon aside and warns her that Desgrieux's father will not stand for his son marrying her, and to ensure that this does not happen, he tells her that Desgrieux's father has plans to abduct his son that very evening. Bretigny offers Manon a way out of the shame and loss that she is sure to experience if she attempts to stay with Desgrieux. He suggests that she move on to a better, more secure future with him. After Lescaut and Bretigny leave, Desgrieux leaves to post his letter, and Manon sings a feeling torn between the two men. She sings farewell to the happy life she experienced with Desgrieux in the famous aria Adieu Notre Petite Table. As Manon sings, the orchestra becomes incredibly stark underneath her. Massenet pulls everything back and writes a series of gentle, plodding chords. There's almost no rhythmic variance, just this steady pulsing of chords, and it's almost as if he writes a funeral march as she sings, kind of giving the sense that Manon is grieving for the life that she must turn her back on. Here we have Anna Trebko singing Adieu Notre Petite Table in the Mets 2012 HD broadcast.
When Des Grieux returns, he sings dreamily to Manon of the life that they will lead together. She does not stop him, she really enjoys the moment, but she also doesn't warn him of the trouble ahead. As Des Grieux describes his dreams for their future, Massenet uses a repetitive circular feeling in the orchestra, a pattern that creates a kind of stillness and dreamlike state. It's high in the strings, with just the occasional long-held note that can be heard from the woodwinds or lower strings. Here again is Piotr Bechtrawa singing Des Grieux at the Met in 2012. Following this, when Des Grieux hears something outside and goes to see what's happening, he is seized by his father's men, and Manon watches him be dragged away. When Act 3 begins, some time has passed, and Manon is out shopping with Bretigny on the Paris promenade. She is luxuriously dressed, and it is obvious that she is lusted after by all the men that pass her by. 
She sings of how, in this new era of her life, she lives in the moment, laughing and loving however she pleases, without worrying about the future. This is Anna Netrebko singing Manon at the Met in 2012, and this is the moment, the gavotte, that Sybil Sanderson requested Massenet reinsert into the score for her for that Paris revival.
As Manon shops along the promenade, she overhears that de Grieux has become a priest at the Cathedral of Saint-Sulpice, and that he has finally gotten over his heartbreak, or so everyone thinks. Even though one of her admirers, Guillot, has arranged for an elaborate spectacle of dancing and entertainment, she shows little interest, and at the first opportunity, she hails a coach and takes off for the cathedral. When she arrives, de Grieux is praying for peace of mind. He has already told his father that he is determined to take holy orders, despite his father trying to convince him otherwise. And just as he prays for peace from the tormenting memories of Manon, she appears determined to win him back. She does everything in her power to remind de Grieux of the love they shared. He tries to resist and pushes her away, but cannot hold out for long. The act ends and the curtain falls with the lovers passionately reunited. When Sybil Sanderson sang the role, she completely stole the show with this scene, and one critic commented that the seduction scene in Saint-Sulpice was so effective that if any priest had been in the audience that night, he would have defrocked himself immediately. The music of this particular moment will return at the end of the opera. I call it Manon's seduction theme, and it is as if the music itself reaches out and grabs you, pulling you towards Manon as she attempts to gain Degria's forgiveness and bring them back together. The theme begins with a rising phrase, and then Manon repeats the phrase, but in the repeat, the line rises even higher than the first statement of that ascending gesture, and this intensifies the dramatic tension and the feeling of that reaching out towards De Grieux. At first, De Grieux attempts to reject her. He refuses her advances three times, but eventually he caves, and when the two sing the seduction theme together, you know that he has given in to her pleas. Here is Anna Netrebko and Pyotr Bekchawa singing together at the Met in 2012.
rises on Act 4, we are in a gambling den in a hotel salon. We get the sense that the goings-on are not entirely legal, and when Manon and Desgrieux enter, she is clearly more at ease in this world than he is. But, as Desgrieux sings, he will do anything for Manon. He is completely under her spell. Manon, seeming to know the power she holds over Desgrieux, reminds him that with his inheritance running out, they need money in order to keep living in the manner of luxury she is now accustomed. Manon sings of the pleasure money will bring, while Desgrieux goes head-to-head in a gambling match with Guillot. When Guillot accuses Desgrieux of cheating, the tensions rise, and despite Desgrieux claiming his innocence, Guillot leaves and summons the police, announcing to everyone that Desgrieux is a cheat. As Desgrieux is about to get arrested, his father arrives and intercedes, saying he will save Desgrieux, but he will do nothing for Manon. Desgrieux and Manon are arrested, with Guillot enjoying every moment of this revenge. When the curtain rises on Act 5, Desgrieux has already been freed from imprisonment with the help of his father, but Manon is still detained, and the action begins with soldiers bringing all the imprisoned women to the port to be shipped off. With the help of Lescaut, Manon's cousin, Desgrieux manages to bribe a guard and get Manon pulled out of the deportation line. Manon is in really rough shape sick and exhausted from her time in prison, and incredibly weak. She falls at Desgrieux's feet, and although the two lovers are reunited, any fight left in her is quickly fading. Desgrieux optimistically tells her that they can go back to the way things were, but Manon knows it is too late. She sings of her remorse for the pain she put him through, and recalls all of their different musical themes from throughout the opera, like when Desgrieux dreamt of the future with her, when he posted his letter, the little table they shared in the Paris apartment, or the time they were passionately reunited in Saint-Sulpice. She begs for Desgrieux's forgiveness and sings her last line, That's the story of Manon Lescaut, while dying in his arms. To end, we'll hear this final scene, listening to the 1995 recording with René Fleming and Marcello Alvarez. And as we listen... Really look for those musical moments from earlier in the opera and how they return, sometimes in short flickers or fragments, and sometimes in longer thematic recollections. Manon and Desgrieux's love theme punctuates all of Manon's reminiscence of their happy times together. 
we hear a derivation of the seduction theme. It's as if it's been turned from a theme of seduction to a theme of being reunited. And as Manon dies in Desgrieux's arms, Desgrieux sings to her the exact melody that she used to seduce him back at Saint-Sulpice. It's as if he's trying to seduce her into living, even when he knows she is too weak to fight. As she dies in his arms, the music from Saint-Sulpice is dramatically recalled and restated in the orchestra as the curtain falls. Oh, my God. 
Many thanks to Naomi Baratera for guiding us through the music, history, and story of this French masterpiece, Manon. The Metropolitan Opera's production of Manon is currently on stage and will be broadcast to cinemas live in HD on October 26th. For more information, please visit metopera.org. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.